0: Good morning, church. You know, one of the hardest, if not impossible, things to do is to evaluate and diagnose how it is exactly that our culture affects us. And that's that's really difficult to do. I mean, it's sort of a fish in water. That's what we've always known. We don't know anything different. It's really, really difficult to diagnose how it is that our culture affects affects us. Because mark my words, positively or negatively, for better or for worse, every single one of us has been shaped and influenced and in many ways evangelized and discipled by the culture. Consider for instance what it means to be American. What it means to be American. The the values that we have the rights that we just assume, the the lenses through which we view reality. See, as Americans, we, we value a kind of rugged individualism. Don't we? sort of a pioneering spirit that loves our freedom, that loves our independence. We, we love feelings of self-accomplishment, self-sufficiency, self-help, self-achievement. We, we are thrilled by stories of people who had nothing and beat the odds and without help from anyone climbed their way to the top. See, Americans are kind of like the Vikings of old, independent warriors of Personal choice who make it we make it on our own in the world. We create our own destinies We are the masters of our own fates. We are the captains of our own souls. Thank you very much I mean as Americans we we prize our privacy We adore our autonomy personal choice and self-expression and the power to try to control everything about us. I mean we are Americans And you see the point is Some of those kinds of things might be okay for some things in life. But I'll be totally honest with you, those kinds of mentalities wreak havoc when we try to bring them into the church. In fact, I'll just say this, the church in many ways is the exact opposite of that. There are very few things in life that are as counter-cultural, counter-human as what the church is supposed to be because you have to understand when two objects collide, there is always damage of a collateral nature In every day of your lives, the passions of American culture are colliding with what, it, what the New Testament says it means to be a Christian and part of what it means to be a Christian, get this now, is loving, Affectionate attachment to a local church where we covenant together for richer or poorer in sickness and in health to advance together the mission of the King. That is the church. And speaking of that affectionate attachment, to a local church where we advance together the mission of the king. The name for that, the name for that is called membership. It's membership. That's what it means to be a member of the local church. And I have no idea what most people mean by membership, but I know what the Bible means. I know what I mean by that. And membership is what we're gonna be talking about as a church. As you know, we just finished a three-week series on the vision of our church. We are Christ Community 2.0 We have crafted a new mission statement. We have new convictions, new uh, commitments as a church. We we know we have a 20-year plan to change the world. I mean, we are locked and loaded, and we are ready for the future. New horizons are just beyond us. And yet, I just want you to know that none of that, none of that is ever going to go the way we hoped unless we get under our belts what it means to be members first. And I know, I know all the objections. I've heard all the objections to membership. Why are we even talking about this? I mean, is membership even in the Bible? Do I have to put my name, sign my name on a piece of paper to prove that I'm committed? Why do I have to become a member of the church? And the answer is, if you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, you're already a member. It's just that The assumption from the New Testament is that how your membership to the universal church expresses itself is through affectionate attachment to a particular local church in a particular area and if possible, for life. You see, the reason why we're doing a series on membership is because I want to prove to you, I want to prove to you that membership is probably not what you think. It's better than you think. I want you to see the membership. And actually, what we're going to do, we're going to call membership ownership. That's the name for membership at this church. We're going to call it ownership. I just want you to see that what it is is a radical call to ordinary Christianity, which is being and doing everything the New Testament calls us to be and do, and yet we be it and do it in this community of souls called the local Church. In other words, membership is treasuring Christ together in the context of a local church, embarking together on the most high-stakes mission in the universe. That is membership. Because again, as I said a few weeks ago, I want us to build NASA together. I want us to be a launch site for global ministry, reaching the ends of the earth. But again, NASA doesn't reach the moon with rickety rockets and broken computers and half the people showing up for work. NASA only reaches the moon when every bolt is tight and everybody is here and they know what the mission is. And, and maybe you're thinking, yeah, okay, but I don't need I don't need to sign a piece of paper. To prove that and that's true technically you don't but you see I'm not after merely a class or a contract or a signature I'm after a covenant I'm after an oath I'm after a marriage if you will what I'm after is a passion to join us in prizing And portraying and proclaiming the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. That is what I am after. And so, what you're getting this morning and next week is a theology a theology of membership. What it means, why it matters, why it's in the Bible, and why, when you do it right, it changes everything for a local church. So, here's where we're going. Maybe you have notes, maybe you don't. Here's where we're headed. This morning and next week, I want you to see six components. Six components of church ownership, a.k.a. membership. Six components of church ownership that will empower you to maximize your lives for the mission and glory of Christ. That's where we're headed. Six components components of church ownership that will empower you to maximize your lives for the mission and glory of Christ. Six components, three this morning, three next week. Here we go. The first component of church ownership is this. Number one, the metaphors for the church. The metaphors for the church. And you see, I put this first because I really believe that the metaphors of the Church demand membership to the church. Now, suspend judgment, okay, let, let me build my case here, but what I mean is what I mean is once you understand the nature and essence of what the church is, affectionate attachment to a particular local church becomes a total no brainer. I mean that's what the New Testament assumes that you will do if you belong to Christ. That's what membership is. In fact, where the entire idea of membership comes from is in the Bible. First Corinthians 12, last Sunday, Rich did open heart surgery on the text, and the metaphor of the church we saw is that the church is a what? The church is a body. Meaning what? Meaning, meaning just like a human body, there are members, head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Christ is the head. He has a body. The church is that body, and we are individually members of that body. If you have notes, look at Romans 12, verses 4 and 5 in your notes. Or just listen, Romans 12, verses four and five, Paul puts it like this. He says, for even as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one in one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Do you see that membership? Whatever that means comes from a biblical analogy that the church is a body composed of many members. And the whole point of the analogy is that we, like individual members of the body, are inseparable and connected. Do you see that? The church is not a bag of fingers, but a body with eyes and hands and knees and feet that cannot function independently of one another. I mean, you read the Bible, and it is undeniable. The entire Christian life is designed at the outset to have a mutual interdependence upon one another, which means the only way to really thrive in the Christian life is in a community of souls connected together in holy codependence. My spiritual growth is your priority. Your spiritual growth is my priority. That is what the church is The question is, is that how you view the Christian life? Do you you see the church as a a body of members mutually connected to one another, joined by a common life, or do you view Christianity as a bag of detachable limbs and prosthetic parts? What I mean is, have you been infected by the gas station mentality of Christianity? You pick the one you want, when you want, when it works for you, or, or... Do you see the church As a beautiful synergy of souls, inseparably connected together, joined by a common life, by faith in Christ, each one mutually dependent upon the other. Don't you see? The church only works the way it should when we view even our most private moments, not as private moments, but as part of the immune system, as part of the nervous system, as part of the bloodstream of the church church because like it or not we are connected what you watch and what you do and what you think about and what you expose yourself to even in your most private moments is inevitably absorbed into the bloodstream of the church because we are a body and that is membership And should someone say, well, yeah, but the text you quoted from Romans 12, that's talking about the universal church, not the local church. My response is, maybe, maybe. But you see, the New Testament makes very little if any distinction between those two things. What's true for one is true for the other. It's not either or, it's both and. You see, the entire assumption from the New Testament, listen very carefully, the entire assumption from the New Testament is that how your membership in the corporate universal global church, how it expresses itself is through loving, faithful attachment to a local church in a particular area, using your gifts to encourage one another in Christ. That is in the Bible. But the body is not the only metaphor for the church, is it? There's lots and lots of metaphors. Each one emphasizes implies, and even demands not just membership, but ownership of the church. Look at your notes, Galatians 6.10, Ephesians 2.19, 1 Timothy 3.15, 1 Peter 4.17. What does it say the church is? It says it calls the church the household of God. The household of God. What does that mean? It means that the church is not a corporation or a country club or a business or a society. No, the church is a family. It's a family. Meaning what? Meaning we are connected. Not by our own blood, but by the blood of the Lamb. We are connected, not by the same last name, but by the name of the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Don't you see? If we are members of a family adopted by the Father through the Son, and we are that then what that demands is a kind of love and affection committed to helping one another thrive in Jesus Christ through his word. You see, the entire, get this now, the entire family metaphor demands a a determined kind of love and care and love and perseverance, even when things are not necessarily going according to your preference. Even when you get burned even when you get hurt, even when you get snubbed, even when you get overlooked, and all those things are gonna to happen to you. And they're gonna to happen to me, and they have happened to you, and they have happened to me. I mean, think about what the church is. The church is a recovery room of ransomed sinners and recovering idolaters. <laughs> unintentionally, I'm gonna hurt and disappoint you. And unintentionally, you're gonna hurt and you're gonna disappoint me, but the knee-jerk reaction is not just to pick up and leave, but to do what families are supposed to do. Pray for one another. Speak the truth to one another encourage one another, comfort one another, teach one another, admonish one another, maybe even rebuke one another, love one another, instruct one another, serve one another, confess your sins to one another, be devoted to one another, bear one another's burdens, and literally like 40 other one another's in the New Testament, don't you see? It is glorious. The entire family metaphor places upon each of our shoulders the grueling but joyful responsibility to help one another grow in Christ. And just like any family, this one is highly imperfect. And just like any family, there isn't the option to just leave, to just walk away, to not show up. And what am I saying? What am I saying? Am I saying that you can't leave one church and go to another? Of course not. It's not a cult. We don't own you. We're not not masters over you. You could totally do that. In, In fact, that's what makes the family metaphor work so incredibly well, is that you can always be joined to another church because that body of believers, get this, is equally your family also. I'm just saying, A, we push the eject button way too fast and leave oftentimes for the totally wrong reasons and b listen carefully the family metaphor expresses itself the best when we are affectionately attached to a particular body of believers in a particular area and if possible if possible till death do us part that brings great glory to christ and that is membership and more could be said, but the church is not only a body, it's not only a family, the church is also a flock. The church is a flock. John 10 16, Christ talks about the whole global of bo- body of souls for whom Christ died, and he calls them a flock. We are joined by this universal connection in Christ to believers all over the world. That is a flock. And yet what's interesting to me is that in 1 Peter 5, Peter calls particular elders at particular churches to shepherd the particular flock of God among them. And he tells them to be examples to their particular flock. And what that tells us is that while, yes, there is a global component to the flock of God, we are all one global flock bought with the blood of the shepherd, to be sure, at the exact same time, The global flock of God is made up of constituent smaller flocks all over the planet, and the implication is those particular flocks are to be loved and led by particular elders for whom, in particular, they are responsible. So what? What does that prove? It proves whatever it means to be part of the global flock of God That it works itself out in particular churches as believers live out their lives in the context of the local church. In other words, the local church is the up-close, tangible manifestation of the global church. Put it like this. You might remember as kids eating cereal at the table. And I was one of those privileged or cursed kids, depending on how you look at it, where I got to eat cereal like tricks and Fruity Pebbles, and Lucky Charms, and uh, Count Chocula, and, and glorious creations. I mean, whether that reveals man's depravity or his creativity, you be the judge. But if you remember, if you remember as kids, you're eating cereal, and what did you do? You had your bowl there in front of you, and, and what, was, what were you looking at while you were eating? The box. The box. Because it's filled with all sorts of things. It's really this self-contained entertainment device. It's really this incredible thing. And, and you're sitting there looking at the box and eating your cereal, milk, colored milk, very sugary milk dripping off your chin. And I remember sitting there and and looking at this Fruit Loops box with giant Fruit Loops on the front. And in case someone gets the mistaken impression that there are Fruit Loops the size of your head inside the box. There's this tiny little clarification just under the picture. Do you remember what it said? Enlarged to show texture. Not a stretch, that is the local church. That is the local church. You see, the universal global church is all the Fruit Loops in the world. And the local gathering of believers is the enlarged picture that tangibly displays what the global church looks like. Do you see? Organic, inseparable connection between the two. And the point is to be members of the universal church reveals and displays and expresses itself in particular local churches where individually the members seek to build one another up in their faith and persevere on the path to Jesus. That is membership, or as we're going to call it, that is ownership. And in, I'm going to explain to you why we're calling it ownership in point three, but for now, that brings us to the second component of church ownership. The second component of church ownership, number two, the biblical case for ownership. The biblical case for ownership. Because membership is not in the Bible. So they say. So they say. And, and I'm sure you've heard people say that, I've heard lots of people say that, and in one sense I totally get the objections, I, I, I really do. And yet when people insist that membership is not in the Bible, I always think, well, okay, at least not the kind of membership you're talking about. At least not the membership kind of membership you think I'm talking about. Because when people say that, I just wonder, are they asking the right questions? I mean, are, are, they, are they looking for the right things? Are they reading the same New Testament that I am reading? Have they understood the full implications of what the church is? I'm wondering, are they taking or, they, or are they assuming that I'm taking a 21st century consumer mentality of membership and importing it into the rich, deep, full, thriving concept of membership found in the Bible? Because if they could just see, if they could just see Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 and all that the New Testament says that a church is, then, then they would see. They would see that membership is not a Costco like membership or a club status where you pay your dues and jump through some hoops and get your name on a plaque somewhere. Rather, membership is a covenant. It is an oath. It is an understanding that our membership in the universal church expresses itself in an affectionate and, if possible, permanent connection to a local church where we make one another's spiritual growth our top priority. That's all we're talking about. You might be asking, where where is that found? Okay, well, good question. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. You don't have to turn there. But in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, Paul says that individual local churches build one another up by speaking the truth to one another. In other words, Paul is envisioning that the never close, open seven days a week ministry that happens in a local church is your investment of the word of God into one another's lives. I mean, that, that is the essence of a healthy church, Now, can you do that for believers in China over Skype? Of course you can. And if you know believers there, you should totally do that. But that's not what Paul's talking about because local churches are self-contained units in which this kind of ministry happens. This is what Christianity looks like. In fact, the New Testament only makes sense when you understand what we are commanded to do happens in the context of a local church. Consider, for instance, Hebrews 13, 17. I believe it's in your notes. Hebrews 13, 17. The writer says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they themselves keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And yet let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Do you see If if this verse would make zero sense, it would make zero sense if an affectionate attachment to a particular local church under particular elders was not the thing in his mind, and it is the thing in his mind. I mean, think about it. Your leaders. Submit to them. They keep watch over your soul. Do you see? You are part of the universal church, to be sure. But you are not called to submit and follow all of the pastors on the entire planet. That's impossible. The New Testament is not calling you, expecting you to do that, unless of course you are in their congregation. Rather, rather, the internal logic of the New Testament is that how you manifest your belongingness to the universal church is in, in, in the expression of a local church in a particular area, under particular leaders, for whom they are responsible in particular. So this is what membership is, or better, this is what ownership is. I want you to consider Matthew 18. In fact, I want you to turn there. If your Bible's open there already, that's a win. If not, go ahead and look back to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to look at verses 15 through 17. Matthew 18 verses 15 through 17, which, as you know, this passage is, is commonly, or I should say, infamously called, church discipline. And yet I just want you to know that the name we're going to give that in this church is church restoration. This is church restoration because what we're about is in the business of restoring people, of reconciling people. In other words, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, what this is, Christ, get this now, he lays out a process for a church to restore someone who is drifting into the shark-infested ocean of sin and destruction. That's the process. And I'll just tell you this right here, this process right here, this is literally the immune system that keeps a church from imploding from the inside out. Many churches do not exist anymore precisely because they refused to do this process well or at all. Look what Christ says He says, If your brother should sin against you, go and speak with him between you and he alone. And if he should listen to you, you have gained your brother. But if he should not listen to you, take two or three with you in order that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter should be confirmed. And if he should refuse them, tell it to the church. And if he should refuse even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Do you see that? What what Christ The Lord and boss and master and commander and sergeant and pilot of the church, what he gave the church is a four-step process to pull someone out of the minefield of sin, a four-step process. We'll look at all four steps very quickly. Step number one. Christ says, "If, if someone sins against you, or you see something in someone's life that, that's a concern, what does Christ say to do? You don't tell a bunch of other people. In fact, you don't talk to anybody about that issue except that person. You keep the circle tight, and then you, you talk to that person privately, and you express your love and concern, and you give them a path for biblical change. And I'll just have you know that this process, this step right here, this probably can and does and should happen in each of our homes every single week. This, this initial process of, of lovingly talking to someone about an issue in their life, this is normal Christianity. And that's what Christ says, and, 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 and most of the time, most people confess and repent, and over time, they begin to change, and that's what Christ anticipates. Look what he says, verse 15, he says, and if they should listen to you, you have gained your brother. My wife, over the last 15 years, it is 15, right? Okay, <laughs> 14, 15, yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all good. Uh, my wife, over the last 15 years, has, has won me again and again and again and again. And, and maybe I don't repent as quickly as she would like. Maybe I don't change as thoroughly and quickly as she would prefer. But nevertheless, nevertheless, her faithful intention in my life was always intended to help me weed whack the sin in my life. And yet, and yet in the unfortunate event that someone refuses, someone rejects that, someone becomes defensive and angry and hostile and they make it clear that they don't really want to change. There is a second step. Look at verse 16. But if he should not listen to you, take with you two or three in order that uh, on, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter should be confirmed. In other words, over time, and and again, sometimes it takes time to know. I mean, you don't just slam people the next five minutes later. It's like, well, I talked to you about this. Why haven't you changed? Sometimes it takes time. Sanctification is slow and agonizing and painful. None of these steps should be fast necessarily. But if it's clear that that person refuses to repent and change, what you need to do is up the ante a little bit and you need to call in for reinforcements. In a careful, humble, faithful, prudent, discreet, non-gossipy way, you bring two or three people with you to come alongside that person to show them two things. The gravity of sin and the grandeur of grace. That's what you're doing. Because again, the only goal here, I repeat, the only goal here is repentance. The only goal here is reconciliation. The only goal here is restoration. The only goal here is the renovation of their lives. It's not for revenge. It's not for retribution. The goal is only reconciliation. And this is a second step here reminds me of a, a story a pastor back in Spokane told me about a, a black church back in the 60s where, where a man had been physically abusing his wife. And the police of the area refused to do much, and yet what they said was, uh, they told the elders, "Well, we'll leave it to you to handle it any way you see fit. As long as you don't kill the guy, you can handle it." And so, and so these men they got together with this man, and they told with this man, and they told him that if he ever touched his wife again, they would literally beat some sense into him with their fists. Well, apparently he didn't take him very seriously. So true to their word, they showed up at his house with two or three witnesses, and they took him out back and they gave him a beating that he would never ever forget. And rumor has it it worked. He never hit his wife again. Rich, would you please stand? We're going to grab a couple people here. No, we're not going to do that. Okay. All right, so I just want you to know, uh, you know, uh, don't don't post on Facebook. Well, Jared said we could beat people up who are in sin. Uh, no one said that. Okay. That, I'm not advocating that. But what it does is illustrate the point. And the point is refused repentance necessitates greater gravity and additional reinforcements from the body. But step three, step three, verse 17, if he should refuse them, you tell it to the church. You tell it to the church. Why would you do that? Because desperate times call for desperate measures. And that's how serious sin is. Because, like it or not, Christ's not mine, Christ's not mine, Christ's not mine, Christ's not, mine, Christ's, not my process for helping someone in long standing, defiant patterns of known sin. How to help them come to their senses is to recruit the entire church to go after them any pastor who's not insane has never woken up in the morning and go, you know what? I really hope I could do church discipline today. That'd be awesome. No one thinks that. No one wants that. No one desires that. We want the opposite of that. But, and what this means, what this means to to recruit the entire church, it literally means calling, texting, emailing, stopping by their work if need be, all hands on deck, calling that person to repent of the suicidal pleasures of sin that would destroy them or oftentimes, more oftentimes, destroy their entire family. And while you're in a sober frame of mind and not drunk with sin, isn't that what you would want? As you're thinking soberly in your seats right now and, you, and you, you imagine what it would be like to begin to do little secret things and you begin to slide and all of a sudden you have an entire secret life and all of a sudden years later you are pursuing a path of inevitable destruction. Wouldn't you want someone to come after you and plead with you and love you? That's all this is. That's all this is. And yet, tragedy of tragedies, should they refuse even the entire church's loving, urgent calls to to come back to Christ? Because again, that's always the issue. It raises to DEFCON 4, verse 17. But if he should refuse even the church, that word even is very interesting. If he should refuse even the church, as in like, that would be astonishing if that happened. If he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Meaning what? You shun them, treat them all mean and nasty, gossip about them, none of the above. Rather, with broken hearts and tears in our eyes, we now regard them as an unbeliever and an object of outreach. And we unanimously remove them from the fellowship because they have already removed themselves from the fellowship and they have already declared themselves an outsider. But again, 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 the goal was never, ever, ever to remove them. The goal was only to restore them. The goal was only reconciliation. The goal was only the renovation of their lives. And the question is, why would you do this? Well, I mean, why would you implement this process? Because Christ loves his church and he cares about holiness, and he will not have his holy reputation tainted by his earthly representatives, the church. Now, one clarification, one refutation, and one explanation. First, a clarification. I don't know how you feel, um, but any time that you are in a service and all of a sudden, this issue begins to brought up and the church dis- discipline or better restoration process begins to happen. Half the people in the church start getting really, really nervous. And they start thinking, uh, wait, are they about to say my name? Uh, is this about me? Are they gonna talk about me? Or, uh, I mean, I struggle with sin every single day. I mean, am I gonna show up next week and have my name and my sins read to the entire congregation? I mean, well, what is happening here? To which I reply, oh friend, oh friend, faint of heart and weary and discouraged with your sin this process right here this is not for strugglers this is not for strugglers strugglers are welcome at this church people who mourn over their sin are welcome at this church spiritual cripples and beggars of grace are welcome at this church. I mean, no one is waiting around this church with a flyswatter of discipline, ready to smash you the next time you look at porn. I mean, now you should never, ever, ever do that. And any sin could get to this point, but you have to know the aim of this church is not merely to tell you that you should be godly and never lift a finger to help you. Rather, our aim as a church is to give you what you need so that you can be godly. Do you see? This process is not for strugglers. This is not for fighters. This is not for mourners. This is for those in defiant, ongoing, willful patterns of known sin, which over time makes it clear they refuse to repent and change. And our aim as elders is to so teach and preach and instruct and equip and train and satisfy and captivate and entice you with the beauty of Christ from the text so that you see you don't have to and you must not go down that road In physical therapy they have they have physical therapy right and and you have rehabilitation what we want to do here is pre-bilitation we want to so invest in you in such a way so that when you are faced with temptation it doesn't become this secret monster that grows and consumes you and pulls you away from the body but rather we want to give you the tools that you have now on the front end so that you see you don't have to go down that road. But second, a refutation. A refutation. The, the, the knee-jerk reaction to this teaching on church restoration is usually met by the objection that, well, if you do this process, you know people are going to leave. You do this, people are going to leave your church, especially if it's their first Sunday. And, and I get that. This, this process sounds spooky, right? It sounds spooky, and, but I have a few responses to that. first, We can't let the fear of people leaving drive what we do and don't do as a church. We can't do that. Our job is not to control how people respond. Our job is to obey what the text says. And this passage is in the text. It's in the text. It's there on the page. You're not have to draw a bunch of inferences and kind of cobble up a bunch of verses and kind of invent something. It is in the text and it is from Christ. No one can deny that. The only question is, are we going to obey what the text says knowing that if we obey the text and run Christ's church in his way, he will add to this church exactly who he wants and that we will be more healthy in the end for doing so. Now, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying you can't do the process wrong. You can, you can do it wrong and you could blow it and be mean and nasty and harsh. And I, I, I hope you're assuming we would never, ever want to do it that way. But there's a second response and the response is sure, sure. I've seen, you've seen people leave a church because the elders did church restoration. I've seen it, you've seen it. And that does happen, unfortunately. But if we're just speaking anecdotally here, I mean, if we're just talking about experience, which is not authoritative at all, but if we're just speaking about what we've seen, I have also seen, not even kidding, three separate families at different times who showed up, at three separate occasions, who showed up to our church in Spokane and on their first Sunday, they just happened to be there when the elders were doing church discipline. And those families were saddened, of course, But they rejoiced, they rejoiced. And they were blown away that that church was not interested in hiding or covering up anyone's sin, even in one case, the sin of one of the elders. But that this church loved Christ and they loved the church enough to pursue people who were hurtling off the cliff of sin to destruction. And those people stayed and they became members and they became key families in our church. And in fact, get this, one of the families that showed up on one of those Sundays were unbelievers. Unbelievers and they got saved on that Sunday precisely because of this text. Explain that to me. The explanation is, Christ will build his church in his own way by the means that he has designed. And finally, an explanation. An explanation. Okay, Jared, you're talking about membership, and you're talking about Matthew 18. What does Matthew 18 have to do with membership? It has everything to do with membership. It has everything to do with membership. Why? Because Matthew 18 displays the essence of what membership is. And membership is not a process, but rather it is a relentless commitment of a local church to make one another's spiritual growth their top priority. That's what we're talking about. That's what it is. And again, you might be thinking, okay, yeah, yeah, but do I have to sign a piece of paper to prove that? Well, technically and ideally, no, of course not. No one's, no one's thinking that. No, no one's after a mere signature here. But, but I will say, the elders do need a way of knowing that you understand that the New Testament only speaks of Christianity as happening in the context of the local church. The elders do need a way of knowing that you understand that radical, cutting-edge allegiance to Jesus Christ only, is only conceived of in the Bible as happening in the context of the local church. I mean, we, we, we need to know that you understand that the only category that the Bible has for authentic Christianity is affectionate attachment to a local body where you make one another's spiritual growth your top priority. And isn't that what everybody wants anyway? The question is, is that the kind of Christianity you signed up for? Is that the kind of Christianity that you signed up for? Because I'll just tell you, that's the only Christianity there is. All I'm doing here is making a radical call to ordinary Christianity. And get this, listen very carefully what I'm about to say. An ordinary Christianity is people in need of change Helping people in need of change. Embarking together on the most high-stakes mission in the universe. That's what this is. Now, I, I should say, I can't guarantee that if you buy into the, the vision of membership ownership that we're selling here, I can't guarantee that you're not going to get a little banged up in the process. Because you can, and you will. Because you know, many of you know by experience, that authentic Christianity is painful Christianity. It's painful Christianity. Why? Because it means that you are willing to walk with fallen people down the deepest, darkest roads of their lives. We are willing to tread in our relationships with one another where the unbelieving world is unwilling. And yet painful though it may be, authentic Christianity is also joyful Christianity. Maybe I should say it's the only joyful Christianity. And so when I talk membership, all I mean is what the New Testament calls you to anyway, which is wounded sinners, repairing wounded sinners with the word of God, fighting in the trenches of the Great Commission. That brings us finally to the third Component, the third component of church ownership. Number three, the definition of ownership. The definition of ownership. In other words, all I want to do here is get us all on the same page by doing two things. One, I want to explain why we're calling membership ownership. And number two, I want to define exactly what we mean by this. And the reason why, the reason why we're calling membership ownership. Ownership is not to be cute, it's not to be clever, it's not to be creative, it's to be clear. It's kind of like the word trinity in the Bible. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but it perfectly captures the reality about God that we see in the text, namely that He is a Trinity. And it's the same thing with ownership. The word ownership is not in the Bible, but it perfectly captures the reality about, the, about membership that the New Testament describes. I want you to consider, for, for instance, 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through 26. couple texts, finish line is near, 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through 26. And and notice how Paul describes what it means to be a member. He says, But God has so composed the body so that the members, the members, may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, the other members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, the other members rejoice with it. See that? That is simple, but profound. In Paul's mind, being a member means that you own. You own the burdens and cares and joys and sorrows and triumphs and defeats of everybody else. You own theirs, they own yours. That's what we're after. I mean, the question is, is that why you're here? Is that why you're here? Because there's lots and lots of reasons, lots of good reasons to be a part of a church. There's not just one, but do you feel the weight of the reality that to be a Christian means, listen carefully, that you inherit the holy responsibility of helping one another persevere in their pursuit of Jesus? Consider, for instance, Hebrews 3 should be in your notes. Hebrews 3. This is a weighty text. This is a weighty text. Consider. Take care, brothers, lest there should be in you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And I just want to pause right here. And I want to ask. I'm not assuming. I'm just asking. Is there anyone here who is beginning to see an evil, unbelieving heart falling away from the living God. I'm not asking you to be overly introspective. I'm just saying, I have a human heart too, and I know what it's like. Is there anyone who you can feel yourself drifting into the cold waters of iniquity? We want to help you. No one is interested in smashing you. We only want to help. And so Steve mentioned that he was going to be up front afterwards. In fact, I want all the elders, if you would, all the elders be right up here afterwards. And you could talk to us if you want. No sweat if you don't. We want to be available to you. So literally right up front, my left, your right, we will be here and we are there to talk and help and and do whatever we need. But instead of that, in fact, the exact opposite of that, the writer says, but exhort one another. Encourage one another day after day while it is still called today. Listen, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for we have become partakers of Christ if, if, if we hold fast our assurance firm until the end. That is church that is church helping us hold fast our assurance firm until the end I mean we should be able to walk in here on a Sunday morning and we should be able to meet each other's eye from across the room and instead of looking away because it's kind of awkward we can hold and let that gaze on one another linger just for a minute be a little awkward still but as we make eye contact with one another what we could do is we could look at one another and we could just kind of nod and we can you know do this thing and because we just we just have this understanding we have this understanding that my spiritual growth is your priority and your spiritual growth is my priority that we just live we just live with the understanding that you and I possess the most dangerous and destructive instrument on the planet. And it's called a human heart. And it is so deadly and it is so destructive, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It is so deadly and destructive that should we be left to ourselves, we will drift, we will drift into the shark-infested ocean of sin and destruction. I mean, people can criticize membership all they want. Ah, it doesn't bug me at all. But they can't criticize the I bleed for you and you bleed for me kind of commitment that the New Testament calls every single Christian. Don't you see that the church is made up of 10,000 intentional moments a week where we invest the word of God into one another's lives? So now, finally, a definition, and then we close. Here's my definition of ownership. It's a bit outlandish and ridiculous. It's all one sentence. I mean, everything's all one sentence, but sentences are one sentence. But here's my very long definition of, of what it means to belong to a local church. Listen very carefully. Ownership is to be graciously included by God through Christ into a global body of redeemed souls from every nation. And yet how those souls manifest their allegiance to their Redeemer, listen carefully, is in an affectionate attachment to a particular expression of that body called the local church in which they use their spiritual gifts to help one another prize and pursue Christ as the highest treasure of their souls. That's what it means to belong to a church. Again, one sentence, pretty ridiculous, but think about it. God, at the cost of his son's life, I mean, we're being serious now. God, at the cost of his son's life, included you in this global body of redeemed souls called the church. And yet, and yet how those redeemed souls express that allegiance to their Redeemer is in an affectionate attachment to a particular expression of that body called the local church. And our aim as a church is to use the gifts we have been given to help one another prize and pursue Christ as the highest treasure of your lives. Why would anyone not want to be a part of that? all the community you long for, it's found in the local church. I'm not guaranteeing that this church is going to do that perfectly because we ain't. I'm not guaranteeing that you're not going to feel hurt at times because you will. I'm not guaranteeing that you're not going to be disappointed because you will. And I know that hurt and difficulty and pain awaits all of us. And yet that, that's what makes the church so sweet is because we not only have the category, we have the power through Christ to be able to handle those kinds of things in such a way to restore mutual love and affection and fellowship with one another that the world just doesn't have at their disposal, but we do because we have been purchased by the Lamb. So Christ loves his bride. And I want you to love the bride also. And let me just ask you this. i close with this, just just give me a a couple more minutes. Uh, My question for you is what is the next stage of growth that needs to happen in the church in your life? Do you need to become an owner of the church, a co-owner of the church? Because that's what we are, it's not about being spectators, it's about being shareholders of ministry. It's not about being observers, it is being owners of the church. Do you need to become an owner of the church? Because even we will have a class, a class on church ownership. And if you are not an official co-owner of the church, I invite you to take it. Do you need the warm accountability and mutual discipleship of a small group? Because you know, you know that the lone wolf is the dead wolf. There's no such thing as thriving in the Christian life on your own in isolation. I'm not saying that a small group, you have to do it or everyone's gonna critique you and think you're not doing well. No one's saying that. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that is one of the most practical ways to connect in a really great way to a local church. Do you need to be equipped for the work of ministry? to be equipped to to meet the needs of the saints and build one another up in their faith. We have equipping classes at 9 a.m. designed to do that very thing. It's still not too late to show up. No guilt if you don't, but we'd really love to have you. Do you need to start serving others by using spiritual gifts, building people up in their faith? Ministry teams are coming with loads of opportunities. I mean, I hope you can tell. I just want you to feel this and hear this from all the elders. We have zero interest in guilting you because that's not fruit. If you do something out of guilt or fear of what we think of you, that's not fruit. Rather, we want to entice you. We want to allure you to be a part of this grand thing called the local church because this church, despite its many flaws, this church is not a building. It is a battalion of blood-bought souls purchased by Christ, embarking together on the most beautiful high-stakes mission in the universe. Let's pray. Oh Lord, things like this are a challenge in one sense, but in another sense, Lord, it is freeing and liberating to talk about, oh Lord, something that everybody wants, which is a glorious connection with other people. Oh Lord, it astonishes me that you, the triune God, has always been in community forever and you save a people and you save them into a community of souls and that's what this is, Lord. and Lord, we may not have designed the church. We may, this, that may not have been the, the blueprints that we drew up if we were in charge, but we thank you that we are not in charge and we are grateful for the church and what it is and that it's designed to be a mirror which reflects who you are for everyone to see. It is the stage upon which your glory is put on display. So, Lord, I pray, I plead with you for a renewal in our passion to love the local church. Not that it doesn't exist here, Lord, because I am so encouraged by so much that I see, but, but I'm asking, O oh Lord, for a deeper, even deeper, thriving, robust body life. That membership, O oh Lord, It is not some false thing imposed upon the Bible. Membership is assumed by the Bible. So Lord, we give you thanks for you and your plan and what you're doing in human history, and we are just thrilled to be a part of it. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.